The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 17th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Look, the White House isn't about what feels good. It's about what is good. Feeding a hungry person might feel good or even sound good, but that doesn't mean it is good. OMB director Mick Mulvaney explains. We can't spend money on programs just because they sound good. And great, Meals on Wheels sounds great. Again, that's a state decision to fund that particular portion to it, to take the the federal money. That's right. Meals on Wheels sounds good, especially if you're one of the mostly elderly people who depends on Meals on Wheels as your only source of calories. Would be pretty good right about now, huh? I guess these old people, they could eat cold, hard tack. But what about the cold, hard facts? Meals on Wheels actually does work really well. One study separated seniors into three groups. One got meals on wheels. One got a shipment with a box of food for the week. One got nothing. Who did the best? The ones with meals on wheels. Not only was their nutrition the best, because they had those face-to-face exchanges with the guys delivering the meals on the wheels, those seniors had fewer falls, fewer injuries. It all adds up to less cost to the state in caring for these people who would otherwise be malnourished or have fallen. Furthermore, Meals on Wheels allows people to live at home and not go to nursing homes, and that's also a government savings. Still, that's not why Meals on Wheels sounds good. Meals on Wheels sounds good because it rhymes. It is fun to say. The program would definitely exist in some form if it didn't rhyme, but because it does rhyme, it's pretty beloved. Now, there are some items that wouldn't exist but for the rhyme. I think of soap on a rope. I have some soap on a rope, but in countries where soap does not rhyme with rope, it is basically unknown. A Bulgarian, when faced with supanna vuze, would be confused. If a Ukrainian went into the store and saw some Arquan Ustida Sovan, he would ask, Nima? That means what in Ukrainian? Just like if you offered for purchase a Samoan, a little bit of fasamoli iluga ose maia, would wonder, why is the moli on the maia? And he'd be right to wonder that. Moving to Russia, they would be nonplussed at the prospect of Milona Verevke. But you know what? It works the other way too. Like, you know how wreaths and branches, arrangements of branches, you know how they're like so popular here in the United States? Oh, you don't know that? You know why? Because they're not. But in Russia, they're wild for wreath and branch arrangements. Why? Because the Russian word for this is yolki-polki. It literally means like tree sticks. What's so great about tree sticks? Nothing. But they sound good. Yolki-polki. And so does Meals on Wheels. It should be noted that it is a weird fight for Mulvaney to pick. Because really, almost none of the federal government, the grants he's actually talking about, actually goes to fund Meals on Wheels. It's mostly funded on the state level. Though you've got to wonder how much Meals on Wheels funding there will be in the future. Hey, maybe the old folks can just line up at the train station and be tossed some snacks on the tracks. Which beats what is actually provided for in the Trump budget. Best wishes, no dishes. On the show today... It's an Antan twig, and we award lobsters. Perhaps if you're new to the show, you will find out that I make up words. But first, got a dispute? Can't get an executive order on immigration? You don't take the law into your own hands. You take them to court. And you hope Dahlia Lithwick is there to explain what the hell is going on. (music) 
An announcement for all of our listeners who are also journalists. Slate is hiring a politics editor. Do you want to direct some of the best political reporters and writers in the business during one of the most tumultuous moments in American history? Uh, That's now, by the way. Then you should apply. If you're interested, have at least five years of experience covering U.S. politics. Send the cover letter and resume to politicseditor at slate.com. I do not know who will be answering that email since we are looking for a politics editor. Anyway, if you want to learn more about the job, the requirements, go to slate.com slash politics editor. Again, the URL is manned by who? This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Two federal judges have now blocked the administration's travel ban redux. The core of the halt, it's not the words in the ban, but the words that Donald Trump and his surrogates have used to explain, justify, and sell the ban. Legal experts are saying this could be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, which might actually have nine justices by the time it gets there. Now, legal experts, you hear me saying legal experts? I got one of those right here. The best one. Tremendous. A fantastic (laughs) one. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts for Slate, is the host of the Slate podcast, Amicus. Hello, Dahlia. Hi there, Mike. Hello. We're going to go in order. One is, do judges generally or ever use campaign statements as a means to test the intention of a law? It's a great question. And I think generally judges are cautioned against, you know, the the actual rhetoric that, that is used in these cases is, you know, peering into the heart of uh, the person who uh, has drafted the law. They're not supposed to do the sort of cardiologic assessment of, is he really a racist? Can we use his campaign statements to figure out if he's a racist? And so a lot of the folks who 
object to both the Hawaii and the Maryland judge doing that are suggesting that that's what's going on, that this is impermissible probing, you know, what is really going on in the heart of hearts of the legislature, and that is not an appropriate role for judges to play. Yeah, and I could see a downside to it. Let's just separate ourselves from this situation. Take uh, the ban on contraception, which is what Griswold versus Connecticut was about, and a right to privacy was found. Well, what if politicians at that time didn't couch whatever bills they wrote or legislation they proposed, didn't couch it in the language of privacy, but just said, you're going to get contraception. I mean, would a justice, would we think now that a justice then would be justified in saying, oh, this isn't the right reason to propose your bill? Well, it's an interesting question, and I actually think we have a really good contemporary case talking about that, and that's Whole Women's Health. That was the big Texas abortion decision that came down uh, in June, where the Supreme Court had to assess whether Texas legislators, where they were, you know, enacting this incredibly draconian law and saying, okay, you know, you need to retrofit clinics as ambulatory surgical care centers and doctors need, you know, admitting privileges and all these other things. And we're just doing it, says Texas, not because we want to shut down abortion clinics. Heaven forfend. You know, what we want to do is make sure women are healthy. And there's nothing on the record that suggests that they're just trying to stop abortions in Texas. They say over and over again, you know, these clinics are dirty and dangerous, and we just want to make sure that doctors can get women into the ER. And what does the court do? 5-3, in an opinion written by Justice Breyer, he says, no, that's a pretext. Pierce the pretext. It is the judicial role to look past the statements that the legislators are making and figure out if there is a connection between what they assert to be the state interests and what they're actually doing, and certainly in whole women's health. And I would say you've seen a kind of ripple effect after, Mike, where not only in scrutinizing state abortion legislation, but also sort of interestingly in Second Amendment cases, in voting rights cases where um, voter ID laws are being enacted ostensibly under this idea that we just want to get rid of vote fraud. We're seeing more and more judges actually do what Justice Breyer is saying and looking at, is this utterly pretextual? Um, are you saying it's one thing but trying to do another? And I think in defense of both the Hawaii decision and the Maryland decision, the judges in some sense are somewhat bolstered by the idea that if the legislative claims are completely pretextual, as they would suggest they are, then we can poke through that. That's our job. Give me the Second Amendment case. Is that one where uh, liberal policy got gored? What was that? Well, I think we've seen we've seen both in recent weeks. We've just seen a, a, a raft of cases, I think, uh, where judges are saying, "Hey, you know, if you're going to say X is the end game, and you're finding that legislatively, we don't have to take that uh, at face value." And really, truly, I think if you look at what Judge Watson was doing uh, in the Hawaii case, what he's saying is, I get it, I get it, Mr. President, you know, you're saying this is about national security, you're saying this has nothing to do with Islam. I'm not probing what's in your heart. I don't care what's in your heart. <laughs> I, I'm looking what, at what's on your website to this day. I'm looking at what came your, out of your yeah. face, yeah. you know, is more or less what he's saying. Right. And it's not, I think it's unfair to suggest that this is this deep probing into the minds of man. He's saying, 
I'm looking at what Stephen Miller said just a couple of weeks ago. Right. I'm looking what Judy, Rudy Giuliani said just a couple of weeks ago. And if they're telling me that they were asked to take a Muslim ban and turn it into a kosher Muslim ban, if you'll forgive the religious... Halal, what, I believe. Would be. Whatever I just did there. <laughs> yeah. But, like, that's not going to be okay. So I, I think it's not helpful to talk about what's in hearts and minds. I think it's helpful to say... Is this pretextual? Now, from what I understand, I read extensively about the Hawaiian ruling, not so much about the Maryland, but the entirety of why it was blocked by the judge in Hawaii was the extraneous information about the ban, these statements. There was nothing in the ban that the judge pointed to uh, where he said this is enough to get it banned. He entirely rested on the Stephen Miller and the Rudy Giuliani and the uh, in stuff that's still posted on the website. Is that right? Well, it's kind of right. It's important to understand this is a TRO, right? This is just a restraining order. He did not make findings on the merits. There hasn't been a hearing on the merits. All he was doing was enjoining it. And that's an incredibly preliminary stage. What he's got to figure out at that point is, do these plaintiffs have some likelihood of succeeding going forward? It's not... Um, you know, a, a judicial finding the way you, you know, would think it would be. I think it's also important to understand that he is very, very careful to say these actual plaintiffs, in this case, it's the state of Hawaii and an imam from uh, a Muslim center there. He's saying actually they have real harms they're going to suffer from this. And he goes, I think, to some pains to say, you know, Hawaii has this you know, interest in tourism, that's going to be harmed. Hawaiian universities are going to be harmed when their students and professors can't show up to work. This particular plaintiff, this uh, man of Egyptian descent, literally isn't going to get to see his mother-in-law who can't Mm -hmm. get a visa now. So he's careful to go through, I think, the other part of this. In addition to, you know, you're right, there are due process claims and there are religion claims that he goes through, but he also says, and I think this is important, and he tacks it on to some of what we've seen before in the other courts, he says the national security reasoning that is proffered, the idea that this is going to make us safer, is simply not sufficient. And so I think what he's saying, in addition to, you know, the findings that you're describing, which are, you know, this is still a Muslim ban, and that's, you know, in violation of both the federal constitution and the Hawaii constitution, I think he's actually saying, there are real harms to real people. That's Mm -hmm. what I have to weigh right now in this posture, looking at a temporary restraining order, and that the real harms are consequential and meaningful. And that's really the question I have. If there is no countervailing national security uh, harm that I can find, then this is the right thing to do as a judge, is what he's saying. Right. So, But what that says is that just because there are harms is not reason enough to ban it. It's the harms weighed against the benefits, and he can't find It's the harms, and I think this is where he, and it's probably worth saying, the, the Maryland judge actually does a different analysis. The Maryland judge sort of flicks at the um, First Amendment, the religious claims you're talking about, and then does this deep dive on these statutory claims. So it's a quite a different opinion. But I think that in both cases, what they're what they're kind of doing is saying, look, you know, this doesn't look all that different and sections two and six of the new order are virtually identical. Mm-hmm. And so for our purposes, whatever repair work you had to do doesn't cure it from the taint of fundamentally still being a Muslim ban. P.S. 
see Stephen Miller, P.S., see Rudy Giuliani, see the things that didn't even come into uh, the last court cases on this. What do you think other judges will say? What do you think Republican-appointed judges will say? And which circuits are going to hear this after Maryland and uh, Hawaii? Well, since Maryland and Hawaii, we have the Seattle judge, uh, Judge Robarts, who was the first person who enjoined this nationally, yeah. as you'll remember, that went up to the Ninth Circuit. You might know and him as the so-called judge. This, <laughs> he, he likes that. That's on his resume. Um, <laughs> yesterday, he actually heard uh, an argument that was pretty audacious, where they said, we're not even going to bother to argue about the second ban. We say the second ban is essentially the first ban. The first ban is still stayed. You should preserve your stay. We're not even going to make a new argument. And he smacked that away, uh, but said, I will reserve the right to you know, decide on the merits on the second ban. But he certainly did not uh, accept their claim that fundamentally it's not up to cr- Trump to cure the defects of the first ban. It's up to a court to decide whether it's been cured. That argument was rejected. Maybe worth pointing out that he was a Republican uh, appointee if you're scoring along at home. But I think that, you know, you're certainly going to get judges that do not go as far as the first two judges have gone. I think that it is eminently curable. And I think most people feel that this ban, if you look at the wide, wide deference that judges are meant to give to presidents on immigration and national security issues, this is passable. There are judges who are going to find this or the next iteration fine. I would just say, Mike, that every single time Donald Trump opens his mouth, he makes that harder. Mm. And every time, whether it's attacking the Hawaii judge as he did this week, whether it's going after the Ninth Circuit and suggesting they need to be broken up and, you know, having crowds cheer that, I think every single time he goes after the judiciary as a judiciary, he has a problem uh, with the judiciary going forward. And it's not probably pointless to flag that even the judges on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, which refused to rehear the Seattle case uh, this week and had a, the, the dissenting uh, judges, you know, who really, really like the travel ban. They want to support this Justice Department. They believe that Trump has the prerogative to do this. Nevertheless, we get a 26-page dissent by Jay Bybee, no less, right? He's the one who supervised the torture memo that John Yu wrote in the Bush administration. And Jay Bybee, in the midst of saying, hey, this ban is okay, and, you know, I think that they will probably prevail when this case goes to the Supreme Court. Nevertheless, just busts out this absolute indictment of, of, of Trump for the personal attacks on the judge uh, at the Ninth Circuit, the colleagues at the Ninth Circuit, um, that it does no credit to the arg- arguments of the parties to impugn the competence of this court. Ad hominem attacks, he writes, are never a substitute for advocacy. So I think that if you get the most conservatives the most conservative judges in the country, you get them enraged at the personal attacks. I don't see the end game here other than Trump going to Trump, but it does not seem like a smart posture going into litigation. And finally, in our last question, in our limited time, I mentioned that Judge Gorsuch will be going before uh, Congress for his hearing. There'll be a lot to talk about, but just as far as this issue, is he just going to sidestep it and we shouldn't expect anything of substance to learn anything of substance by what he says or what questions he's made to answer? 
I think he will. He's very, very smart, very savvy, Mike. I think he will say, I cannot answer any question that has anything to do with any issue that may come before me. I absolutely will not be a blank check uh, for the president. He will say both those things many, many times, and those questions will be asked, and we will not have any, I think, meaningful idea uh, whether uh, he's going to be reflexively more for or against this ban. It's just been the posture for a very, very long time that nothing of interest will be said next week. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts for Slate, is the host of the Amicus podcast. Thank you so much, Dahlia. My pleasure, Mike. All this month, we want you to find a friend. That's it. That's all I'm here to say. All right, I shall go on. We want you to find a friend. We really do. I mean, we're glad you're listening to these podcasts, but get out a little. Talk about them with other people who listen or, more to the point, people who don't. And what you need to do is show them, orient them, evangelize a little bit about podcasts themselves. And then when you do so, you could share your story on Twitter with the hashtag TRYPOD, that's T-R-Y-POD, together we can combine to delete podcast unawareness. And now the spiel. Ah, oh, March 17th. March Madness, St. Patrick's Day, dunks and drunks. But more than that, around these parts, it's an antan twig. You know, a three-week period. That word has roots in the Old English, or so I posit. And during this three-week period, I issue corrections. The first is this. It's been four weeks since the last Antan Twig. Next, fake weeks. We didn't mean three, literally. Now, the first real correction, also about numbers. I was talking about how I listened to all the Sunday shows at double speed, and I bragged that I could get to twice the podcast in half the time. Oh, no. Professors John Nash and Van Neiman alerted me. My math was off. It's either half the time or twice the podcast, not both. Yeah, I know. I know. I was engaged in what a salesman calls puffery. You know, cheap at half the price, that sort of thing. I was not, however, engaging in any slick salesmanship when I implied that Antwerp was a part of the Netherlands. That's just me being geographically stupid. I did get some other geographical names at least wrong. I said China, but I meant Japan. I was speaking about Shinzo Abe, played a cut of him. And I talked about the book that explained Japan or, you know, purported to explain Japan 60 years ago, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. And I only mention this because I am the product of a shame culture. And then, I think it was a week prior, I said something about Hugo Chavez being the president of Colombia. I said Colombia. Now, it is true that he was a member of the Columbia House Records and Tape Club. He sent in a penny, got like 12 CDs. But I mixed up these two countries. You know, I don't want to claim any excuses. There are two South American countries that border the Caribbean. Those are them. Have you seen the flags? You got your yellow, you got your blue, you got your red. Okay, Venezuela has a little stream of stars. But in both cases, the yellow represents the gold, the blue represents the sea, the red represents the blood. By the way, the yellow always represents the gold and the red always represents the blood. The blue almost always represents the sea. In Liechtenstein, double landlocked country, the blue represents the sky. Same as Uzbekistan. You know what a double landlocked country is? It's a landlocked country surrounded by other landlocked countries. Though even in Uzbekistan, there is some thought that the blue represents the Aral Sea. Luis Francisco Lopez wrote to me and said, Hi, Mike and or just staff. 
I was amused by the whole, if this is true, it would be awful argument regarding the wiretap thing. You know, if it, if this is true, this was when Sarah Huckabee Sanders went on ABC, I think it was. <laughs> she wouldn't really assert that it was true, but she did say, you know, if it was true, it would be a huge scandal. And Luis writes to me, it reminds me of a saying from my country, Guatemala. All right, here I go. I'm probably going to get the Spanish wrong, but si mi abuelita tuviera bigote, sería mi abuelito. Literally, if my grandmother had a mustache, she'd be my grandfather. And Mr. Lopez said, my dad would say it to me when I kept making excuses of some sort as a kid. Excuses like, when grandma kisses me, it hurts my face. As I wrote back to Luis, we had a similar expression in my family. If my aunt had balls, she'd be my uncle. But nowadays, we wouldn't judge. I got another note from a listener, Nick Bade, B-A-D-E, Bade. He wasn't happy. Hey, Mike, just staff, love the show, but Friday spiel as sloppy at best. I think he meant was sloppy at best. The only reason I say that is here's the rest of the letter. First, Mike referred to a string of bomb threats against Jewish centers as bombings multiple times. In other words, not bomb threats. And then he said the Iraq and Afghanistan wars cost a combined $3 billion. Of course, I meant $3 trillion. He goes on, I'm no Trump supporter, but it's important you get your facts straight if you want to criticize him for fake massacres or sloppy figures. Thank you. Nick Bod, or maybe Bade, or maybe Bade, or maybe Sade. Anyway, Nick, thank you. I appreciate it. I should not make those mistakes. I own up to them. And just saying that, I think, does give me some standing to criticize Donald Trump. Moving on. Now comes the time when we name lobsters. Lobsters are the listeners, the Facebook commenters, the Twitterers, who in some way improved our life, taught us something, made us learn the real meaning of the word pancake. Paul Bell reacting to a spiel where I talked about a smart toaster, which is a thing that that should exist. It's a Kickstarter campaign. And a smart swizzle stick. He pointed to this, the smart pancake maker. Now, there is no narration to this music. This is uh, available for purchase on Amazon. But you can tell it is a smart pancake maker because this is the exact sort of music that they would have for an Amazon video about a smart pancake maker. You draw like the Eiffel Tower or a picture of Albert Einstein, and then it makes a pancake like the Eiffel Tower or a picture of Albert Einstein. It has always been my dream to make pancakes in slightly oblong and twisted shapes, and it is through the smart pancake maker that I can achieve that dream. So thank you for that, Paul. You almost were named Lobstar of the Antan Twig. But that honor goes to another listener, a man by the name of Mukhtar Diallo. And I single out Mukhtar Diallo because of a a tweet that he tweeted at me. And uh, the backstory is this. Paul Ryan had tweeted, freedom is the ability to buy what you want to fit what you need. Obamacare is Washington telling you what to buy regardless of your needs. To which I said, I think you may be confusing freedom with Amazon Prime. Thought it was a good line, right? Apparently 42,000 people agreed. I have no idea what happened. The tweet caught fire. I got 18,000 retweets and a bunch of people said something. I try to get to all of them. And I found Mukhtar Diallo. And his response to me was at Pescami, P-E-S-C-A-M-I, which is my Twitter handle, at Pescami, you're just awesome. That was nice of him. But then I looked at the page. I looked at Mukhtar Diallo's Twitter feed. He has three tweets ever. The first one was in 2013. He retweeted Obama's weekly radio address, 
With this quote, the world has witnessed one sure and steadfast truth. Americans refuse to be terrorized. The last tweet was him telling me I'm awesome. And the second tweet was also at me telling me that Sufis wouldn't join ISIS. ISIS doesn't think they're Muslims. ISIS is Salafi. It's within the Sunni group, but diverged from Sufism, which is good, which is something I needed to know. Three tweets ever. Two of them were to me. Now, look, a lot of people like me along with some other things. A lot of people enjoy me as a side dish or even prefer me as a piquant or zesty salsa to liven up, say, a sprig of chicory. But two-thirds of your tweeting history to me, about me, this is a veto-proof supermajority of your attention. And that feels nice. It feels real. And it feels like you, Mukhtar Diallo, are the lobstar of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson says she's producing the gist out of a sense of duty, but she campaigned on the promise of producing the gist so as to keep the job out of Canadian hands. Chris Berube, just producer, stands as a living rebuke to Mary Wilson's inward-looking isolationism. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, stands as a fair and unbiased umpire, ready to call balls and strikes during this Wilson versus Berube spat and he will not tell you how he will rule beforehand. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is just trying to break up the Lictai circuit. Unelected Lictais. The gist. We're here for you. Though in a statement still on my website, it pretty clearly says I'm here for me. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.